Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So a lot of people don't even think about the thyroid until it stops working. It kind of functions in the background. It keeps everything in homeostasis, everything working. Talk to somebody whose thyroid is not working properly. They're going to feel really, really tired. So energy is one of the most important things. Thyroid hormone or T3, which is active thyroid hormone, is one of the most important hormones in fat breakdown. A lot of times if the thyroid is under active or not working properly, people will just gain 20, 30, 40 pounds in a couple months and it's just a little bit alarming. It affects everything from your hair, blood pressure. It can elevate blood sugars. It can affect cholesterol, fertility, kidney function. Really, any bodily process that you can think of, the thyroid is somehow involved in regulating that. That's endocrinologist and thyroid expert, Dr. Brittany Henderson. And this this is episode 149 of the Plant Proof Podcast. my beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode. I hope that you've been keeping well. It's a real pleasure to be here with you again. For those who are joining us for the first time, I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. You're in for a treat today. It's our first episode ever with an endocrinologist with a specific focus on thyroid health. Thanks to my guest, Dr. Brittany Henderson, you're going to learn about the field of medicine that is endocrinology, what endocrine organs do, what our thyroid is responsible for, the ins and outs of thyroid hormones, common thyroid disorders, how prevalent these are and what's likely causing them, blood tests for monitoring thyroid health, foods for good thyroid health and important nutrients, soy and thyroid health, and a bunch more. Of course, this is a huge topic, so please do think of today as an introduction episode, and I will certainly be digging deeper in due course. Hope you enjoy it, and I'll catch you on the other side, where I'll share a few of my thoughts, tips, and parting notes. Glad we're able to do this, Brittany. Thank you so much for joining me to chat all things thyroid health. I'm excited to talk about it. So I thought, why don't we start from the top here? I am yet to have an endocrinologist on the show. So you're the very first and some 140 episodes in and here we are finally. I'm not sure how that happened. So perhaps you can explain to us what endocrinology is and how you personally found yourself practicing in this field of medicine. Yes, in medical school, I was interested in everything. So I went into internal medicine because it gave me more time to decide what I really wanted to do. And then I ended up working with an endocrinologist just in my free time. So after I would be on call in the emergency room all night, I'd go over and kind of work with them in the clinic and really decided that I liked 
the whole hormone access, you know, all the negative feedback and all of those things. I have a chemistry background, so it makes sense to me. And I liked the fact that I could also help people. I also like the fact that thyroid in particular affected a lot of females, like females to males or 10 to 1 females to males. So I I really kind of was drawn to that area. And I ended up doing my fellowship at Duke University, staying on as faculty there, kind of teaching some of the fellows uh, about thyroid and then ran the program at Wake Forest and decided, you know, to come down. Um, Right now I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, I have my own thyroid-specific practice. So uh, we do hormones and we focus on thyroid. Is that sort of quite typical within the field of endocrinology that endocrinologists will specialize in a, a sort of particular endocrine organ? Absolutely not. I am very strange. <laughs> so <laughs> most endocrinologists are generalists. So they do diabetes and they'll do obesity management. They'll do thyroid. They'll do adrenal. They'll do pituitary. And when I was in the academic medical center, I was doing a lot of that too. But there's such a need for a specialist in the thyroid you know, space that that is what we have focused on for the last two and a half years here in our private practice. And that's what I focused on when I was in practice at these academic institutions. Cool. So endocrine is a relatively new word on this show. I think most people will have heard it though in in dealing with their doctor, perhaps their personal health or people within their family. It is a word that's sort of thrown out there, but perhaps we define what is an endocrine organ? What does that mean? So it means hormones. It means an organ that secretes a hormone. A hormone is a protein that basically travels through the bloodstream into other parts of the body. So it's not like, you know, just the heart or the intestine or the stomach where its purpose is immediately within the vicinity and the location of where it is. But an endocrine organ secretes hormones throughout the entire body that affect all parts of a person's well-being and affect lots of different things with regard to bodily function. Thyroid is in particularly one of the most important. And then you mentioned diabetes, so the pancreas is another one. What are some of the other sort of most common endocrine organs that people may be familiar with? So the pancreas secretes insulin, and insulin is important in driving blood sugar into cells. When insulin is low, that is why people develop diabetes. Their blood sugars go too high. The sugar is not able to get into the cell. Also, people may have heard of adrenal glands or heard of you know adrenal fatigue or things like that. So those are the glands that sit right above your kidneys, and they're important in your blood pressure and in energy. They have that fight or flight kind of hormone where if you get really scared and your adrenaline shoots up, you know that is what the adrenal gland does. Pituitary is super important. That controls a lot of hormones, including your thyroid, actually. So the TSH, which is one of the most common hormones people know, stands for thyroid stimulating hormone, is actually not a thyroid hormone. It's a pituitary hormone in the brain. It's called the master gland because it controls a lot of the other endocrine organs. There's also the pineal gland. That's a little well-known type of endocrine organ. And that's another brain organ that's really important in your circadian rhythm, your sleep cycle. Super, super important. So a lot of people know about melatonin. People take it for sleep. That is the main hormone secreted by the pineal gland, actually. 
There you go. We actually had uh, Emily Manugian on. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. She's a, a scientist at a lab called the Panda Lab. And they're looking at circadian rhythms and how meal timing and light exposure can affect those. So it's super interesting. It affects the thyroid too, actually. All of that circadian rhythm stuff, it actually increases TSH and affects the thyroid axis. It's very interesting how that happens. Okay, wow. Well, let's put a pin in that and try and dig into that as we as we move through this. That was a really good endocrine 101. Now, the thyroid gland, before we kind of get into different thyroid disorders and how they're managed and, and what you see clinically, et cetera, where is the thyroid gland? What is its role? And perhaps we can further dig in a little bit to its relationship with the pituitary gland, which you just sort of alluded to there. Yeah. So a lot of people don't even think about the thyroid until it stops working. It kind of functions in the background. It keeps everything in homeostasis, everything working in order. And it's located in the neck, in the front of the neck, kind of at the base of the neck. It's small. It's about the size of a walnut with the actual covering on it. And it has a right lobe and a left lobe and a middle lobe called the isthmus. So it's also called the butterfly gland because it looks kind of like a butterfly. It has a right side, a left side, and a middle part. If you feel your neck yourself, you know, right where you can kind of feel like the notch of your sternum, that little like V that goes all the way down to where your sternum starts, that right beneath your fingers is where the thyroid sits. And if you swallow and you feel something that's not good, ask your doctor, you shouldn't feel anything. It's so small that you should not feel something, but you can get nodules on the thyroid gland. You can get thyroid cancers, you can get thyroid cysts. And so there you could feel, you know, something hard or something that feels a little bit uneven right versus left. And what's the role? What What is the, the thyroid gland? What's the purpose? You mentioned before it produces hormones. What are these hormones controlling throughout the body? The most important thing is your energy level. So if you talk to somebody whose thyroid is not working properly, they're going to feel really, really tired, like a tired that you haven't felt before. So to the point where you're napping throughout the whole day. So energy is one of the most important things. Also, it controls your weight. So it controls your metabolism. Thyroid hormone or T3, which is active thyroid hormone, is one of the most important hormones in fat breakdown in the body. So a lot of times if the thyroid is under active or not working properly, people will just gain you know, 20, 30, 40 pounds in a couple months. And it's just a little bit alarming. It affects everything from your hair. So people will have hair loss. They'll have their eyebrows, the lateral part of their eyebrows being lost. That's something called Queen Anne's sign because evidently Queen Anne had hypothyroidism. It can also affect swelling in legs and in the face and in the tongue. People can sometimes complain about a swollen tongue. It can affect blood pressure. It can elevate blood pressure. It can elevate blood sugars. It can cause shortness of breath if it's releasing too much thyroid hormone or palpitations or a slow heart rate. It can affect cholesterol. It can affect fertility, lots of fertility issues, periods totally can be completely irregular and heavy or light depending on what the thyroid is doing. It controls kidney function. It could, I mean, just name it. I'm thermoregulation. People are cold if their thyroid is underactive. So it, really any bodily process that you can think of, the thyroid is somehow involved in regulating that. Okay. So super important, integral to good health. There are a bunch of different thyroid 
disorders, and I'm going to get you to sort of list off what the most common ones are. But I'm interested from your point of view overall, are we seeing an increase in thyroid disorders throughout the community, both clinical and subclinical as a sort of whole, a collective? And I wondered if you could sort of speak to that and if so, what might be contributing to that? A hundred percent. Yes, we are. So I will start that by saying that, you know, the published literature says that about one in eight or one in 10 people have hypothyroidism. It's millions worldwide that have an underactive thyroid gland. And it is not being diagnosed accurately. It's not being diagnosed quickly. So on average, about five to seven years pass between the onset of symptoms for people and an actual diagnosis unless you present and you're in florid hypothyroidism. That's not acceptable. I mean, that's horrible. So there's probably a lot more than one in eight or one in 10, probably one in five, especially like I said before, women have this much more commonly than men do, about eight to 10 to one women to men. And it runs very, very commonly in families. So we see a lot of families in our practices. We see grandparents, we see, you know, mothers, daughters. We tell actually our mothers to start screening their girls when they hit 10 years old for thyroid issues. Because if you can catch it early and you can make some interventions in lifestyle or nutrition or whatever else, you can actually stop it from progressing to the point where they need thyroid hormone or thyroid medicine. Can I interject and ask a quick question on that? Is that because there is a sort of significant genetic component to a certain type of hypothyroidism or in your experience and in the literature, is it more down to the fact that the families and the grandmother and the the mother and daughter are living the same lifestyle? Has that sort of been teased out? Uh, It hasn't really, but we definitely know that the genetic component plays a very large role. Now, if you have somebody who has the gene and is predisposed to get hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's disease, that's the most common form of hypothyroidism. So a lot of people are told that they have a hypothyroid issue or a thyroid issue, but they're never given a actual diagnosis. And the most common diagnosis worldwide is Hashimoto's disease. Hashimoto's disease was actually named for the Japanese physician that first described it. Back in the 1900s, he actually did a paper where he looked at the thyroids of these women and it was full of lymphocytes. Those are your immune cells, immune cells that have infiltrated the thyroid gland and stopped it from working. It wasn't actually published until after he died, but that is why it's named Hashimoto's disease. And so that is an autoimmune problem. And a lot of these autoimmune problems where the immune system attacks the underlying endocrine organ or attacks the bowels and Crohn's disease, for example, or attacks the nervous system and multiple sclerosis, those have a genetic component. But there's also a huge environmental component to it as well, something that sets it off, for example. So in kids who have this genetic predisposition to hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's disease, we will see when they get sick, if they get you know strep throat or if they get mono or something, their antibodies against the thyroid gland, which are these blood tests that we can check for Hashimoto's disease, they come up, they pop up into the high range and their immune system starts to attack the thyroid. But then they can go down and they can go into remission. And every time they get sick or have a trigger, that can happen in the background. 
if it's a severe enough trigger or if it's a prolonged trigger, then that's when we start to see hypothyroidism emerge and start to have symptoms. These people start to have symptoms. So would I be right, say we look at type 1 diabetes and because we're talking about autoimmune condition here, is it a case of when those antibodies are elevated that the thyroid gland continues to produce the right amount of hormones, but then over time, as more and more cells are attacked and quote unquote destroyed, I'm not sure if I'm using the right language there, but then it becomes an actual clinical problem. You're right. Yes. So if you catch it early and you actually make those lifestyle interventions, you can stop those cells from undergoing apoptosis or dying. You can't get thyroid follicular cells to regenerate. It's not like liver. They don't regenerate. So once they're gone, you know, you're left with a gland that maybe was functioning at 100%. You got sick. You had this autoimmunity thing happen in the background. You went from 100% down to 95%. And then you got well and it went into remission. Then you had another trigger. You went from 95 to 90, then 90 to 85. And some people have a really severe trigger where they're just, you know, over the years really decreasing their thyroid function to the point where you reach this threshold. And that threshold is the threshold for hypothyroidism. You start having symptoms of weight gain and fatigue and hair loss and cold and constipation is another one, GI issues. So yeah, it's a progression over time and it just really commonly runs in families. We're seeing so much more of it. And I think because we have so many more possible triggers for the immune system. Yeah, this is really fascinating for me. And this is a story about my family. So again, this is anecdote N equals two story here. So let's take it with a grain of salt, but you might be able to add to it. And perhaps you've seen similar. Both of my parents around the exact same time both in their their mid-40s, my mother developed hypothyroidism and my father developed hyperthyroidism within a very, very close period. And again, it could be very coincidental. I'm not sure if you've ever seen anything like that, but quite interesting. Yeah, I do see that. And we know that even in people who are not related, I'm assuming they're not related, (laughs) even in people who are not related, if they get the same viral trigger, for example, or if they're exposed to the same environmental chemicals, for example, flame retardants, and I talk about this in the book that I wrote, they're PBDEs, basically they're brominated compounds, and they are on all of our electronic equipment. They're on new mattresses, for example, if they bought a new mattress or something. And all of those chemicals can accumulate in house dust or other places. You breathe them in. You also can you know, touch them and ingest them. And they look like thyroid hormone a lot to the immune system. So you will get this either activation against the thyroid, a blocking effect, or a stimulating effect like your dad had with the hyperthyroidism. Usually it's the same effect you know, in family members. They all get hypothyroid or they all get hyperthyroid. But it is possible with their differing genetics, you know, differing amounts of whatever they were exposed to, that that happened to them. Do you know if they had antibodies too? Yeah, so that's actually a really interesting point because I was talking to my mother just recently and she has, she was diagnosed with hypothyroidism back then and was put on thyroxine. She's been on that for a long time ever since then and She's changed her diet in the last five years and notice her antibody levels have returned to normal and her doctors significantly cut her medications. So again, 
something interesting. I'm not sure if you've seen that before and what's going on there, but you know, I certainly found that interesting when she explained that to me. I just read an article, it was either yesterday or today about that and about how it's so much easier to get people into remission. That's what we call it when their antibodies go back to normal, when they've had an environmental trigger compared to a viral trigger or something like that. So it probably was something that they were both exposed to. Interestingly, this is interesting, cats get a lot of hyperthyroidism. And we think it's because of those home chemicals, those flame retardant chemicals that accumulate in house dust and cats, you know, meticulously lick themselves and clean themselves and are exposed to all of those chemicals. So they get the hyperthyroid all the time. Interesting. So it sounds like we we need to learn a little bit more about these triggers. But in terms of what we know now, what are the things that you would look at around your home and, and try and distance yourself from? I mean, we live in a very dirty world that is very difficult to kind of get away from all of these chemicals and other things. But I would say, first and foremost, try to you know make sure that you have a very clean air environment. So if you use filters, for example, in your house, or like a standalone air filter, because all of that dust can harbor chemicals that are in your environment. That's how we are exposed to them. Obviously, washing your hands before you eat is important. But these chemicals are in everything. I mean, they're in children's pajama sets, even. I mean, everything. So it's really, really hard to completely get rid of them. But you can do things to reduce your what we call total toxic burden or total toxic load by washing your hands, using water filters, you know, trying to maintain a clean air environment in your home. We like, you know, wood floors or floors where you're not going to accumulate as much house dust as you do in carpeting or allergens. But those little things kind of go a long way. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so that's a little bit about hypothyroidism. And we mentioned hyperthyroidism when I spoke about my dad's experience, but perhaps we just speak to that. So what happens with hyperthyroidism, Graves' disease? Can you talk us through that? Yeah. So it's pretty much a spectrum of autoimmune disease against the thyroid. And like I said, autoimmunity against the thyroid is the most common reason why you get a thyroid problem. It used to be that people had more like iodine deficiency and iodine deficiency goiters because we weren't getting iodine in our food. You get iodine in things like seafood and seaweed and other sources. But now a lot of iodine's added to your food, iodine's added to salt products. So iodine deficiency is not as common, although you are at a higher risk if you're vegan or vegetarian because you're not getting maybe as much of that source in meat products, for example. Graves' disease is pretty much the opposite end of the spectrum compared to Hashimoto's. Hashimoto's disease are antibodies that block the thyroid from picking up iodine and making thyroid hormone. Graves' disease are antibodies that stimulate the thyroid to pick up extra iodine and make more thyroid hormone. And so those patients are exactly the opposite. They'll present with weight loss, which, you know, everyone's like, oh gosh, why couldn't I have that one? But extreme weight loss to the point where it doesn't feel good. Heart racing, sweating, anxiety, difficulty sleeping, diarrhea, chest pains, the, you know, shortness of breath with exertion doesn't feel good to be hyperthyroid or hypothyroid for that matter. But with Graves' disease in particular, the specific antibodies that are associated with that 
can also affect other things like the eyes, for example. I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, pictures of people who have Graves' disease. They can have these eyes that just pop out of their head. And that is because of how the antibodies affect the muscles behind the eye can be kind of disfiguring for people too. So correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the sort of common ways to manage Graves is radioactive iodine. And that's what my how my father was treated. So I'm interested, what happens after you destroy the thyroid through radioactive iodine and then that person takes exogenous thyroid hormones? What happens to those antibody levels? And I guess, what's the prognosis for that person? Does that radioactive iodine address and fix all of the issues that were going on? And then with the exogenous hormones that they're taking, they're essentially just back to to being a healthy individual? Or are they still predisposed to other health problems down the track? That's a good question. So, I mean, I will tell you that people who have Graves' disease and have to do the radioactive iodine treatment, basically you're killing off the thyroid from the inside out. So it's the same as having a surgery without having the surgery. The radioactive iodine concentrates in the thyroid gland, kills the thyroid, and the thyroid kind of shrivels up within the the thyroid bed and is no longer working. In essence, you're removing the antigen. You're removing the protein that the antibody is reacting against and causing havoc on the body. So that's good. People with TED, which is short for thyroid eye disease, that's the eye stuff that I was talking about, they actually can get worsening of the eye disease after the radioactive iodine because the radioactive iodine basically releases all this thyroid hormone and all of these proteins, and you can actually get a worsening of those antibodies before they get better. But over time, you know, once the thyroid is gone, they do get better. They don't always go to zero, but they do decrease. You're getting rid of that antigen and then you're decreasing the immune system issues. But anyone who's had one autoimmune disease is at a risk to get another autoimmune disease. You have about a 25% chance of that. And so I do have patients in my practice who have multiple autoimmune syndrome. They have many different types of autoimmune disease. But, you know, after radioactive iodine, it's a big deal to kill off a gland, especially a gland that's so important. So being on thyroid medicine, eh, it's good, but it's not the same as actually having an endocrine gland, an endocrine organ that actually secretes thyroid hormone when you need it, doesn't secrete it when you don't need it. It's a fake medicine. You know, it doesn't feel the same. Yeah, I imagine going back to what you mentioned earlier about circadian rhythms, And we know that hormone fluctuations throughout the day are very important. They're integral to circadian rhythms. I do imagine it's hard to mimic that through an exogenous hormone. You nailed it on the head, yes. That is what we're trying to accomplish when we give thyroid medicine. And all of the commercially available medicines really don't do that very well. So to try to mimic circadian rhythm, and thyroid is very much a circadian hormone. It's highest in the middle of the night. It's lowest around two or three in the afternoon. And the commercially available medicines really just don't do that. So what is, and and we're jumping a little ahead here, but I, I think it's good to tackle while we're here. What is the current protocol if you are prescribed with exogenous thyroid hormones? Is there a sort of best practice protocol for dosing that at the right time or is it not a one size fits all and it varies patient to patient? How does that look? 
Well, I mean, if you're asking me, (laughs) I really do a lot of personalized medicine. So I use all of the available forms of thyroid medicine that I have, you know, thyroxine or synthroid, which is what we call it. Also, armor thyroid, NP thyroid, all the pig derivatives, the um, natural porcine derivatives. There are bovine derivatives from cow thyroid gland um, where they can get the cow thyroid and use that. It just has to be dosed correctly. And then I do a lot of compounding with my patients. So I will make sustained release medicines so that I can mimic that normal circadian rhythm as well as I possibly can. And it's amazing how much better people do when you try to get them right like that. So you know, according to national guidelines, the American Thyroid Association, the European Thyroid Association, the Japanese Thyroid Association, everybody should be on Synthroid or Thyroxine, T4 only, and call it a day, you know, we're done. And there's not a lot of research either because that is not a high priority. You know, all of the research money is going to other things that aren't very important as well, cancer research and vaccines and infectious disease research. But there is a huge gap in knowledge there. So a lot of what's in the guidelines is one size fits all. That's what a lot of people get when they go to their doctor. And in my practice, we don't do that because we know how important it is that you get on the correct formulation for your genetics and for how you absorb medicine. And also, we try to mimic the circadian rhythm, like you just said, as closely as possible because that's how you feel the best. And anytime you're on a medicine that's an endogenous medicine, you're affecting all of the other hormones in your body as well. So if people are listening, I'm just thinking about how someone could navigate this. If they're based in Charleston, they can pop in and see you and get this very personalized service. But for anyone else around the world, is what you're doing in your practice, are there other places doing it? Is this a conversation that people can have with their endocrinologist? How do you sort of see that playing out for people around the world? This is what I want people around the world to hear and to talk to their own endocrine doctor or their doctors about. We are starting a new organization called ACT. It's the American College of Thyroidology, actthyroid.org. And basically, it will be an educational program for other providers, other endocrinologists and primary doctors to know how to do this correctly, you know, talking about diet and nutrition and how to dose medicine based on circadian rhythm. One of the first lectures is about TSH and how TSH in and of itself is a controversial topic. Where should you actually get your TSH to? Is a TSH of three or four normal or is that actually more on the hypothyroid side? I believe it's more on the hypothyroid side. And I talk about that in the lecture. But if you even just tell your your doctor, hey, I heard this podcast and they have some new information that they're sharing with practitioners and providers, maybe you would want to sign up. There's a free lecture about iodine that they can kind of test drive with. And uh, patients are free to sign up as well as patient advocates. and, And we're trying to put on some free patient educational material as well. But Our goal is to get this to be worldwide, to help other people, because we know how hard it is to live with a thyroid condition, especially when you're not getting the care that you need. Yeah, I love that. I know personally I get 
so many messages from people all around the world with various thyroid conditions who are looking for more solutions. So I think that's super helpful. I'll, I'll put that into the show notes as well so that everyone has a, a direct link that they can look at themselves or, as you said, share with their specialist. I'm wondering... If we want to catch these things early, you mentioned earlier that there is real benefit in picking up if someone has a sort of subclinical thyroid issue before it progresses too far. What can we do to check if our thyroid is functioning properly? Is it a matter of looking at a few different things on our routine blood tests or what would you recommend for the sort of average person listening that perhaps hasn't been diagnosed with a thyroid issue but is wondering, hey, I really would like to know if my thyroid's healthy and, and perhaps they have a mother like me or, or someone in their family that has had a thyroid issue. So my best advice, especially if you have a family history of thyroid, and also for the listeners out there, you know, females, like I said, have the highest chance of getting this. So if your mother or grandmother has it, you know, you are at a higher chance. But if your dad has it, I tell people you are probably going to get it, honestly, because there's such a high penetrance with fathers. So, you know, talk to your family, figure out if you have a history. And then my best advice is to talk to your primary doctor, ask for a TSH. That's easy. Everybody will agree with like a TSH screen, especially if you have a family history. And if your TSH is in the normal range, good. But even if it's in the normal range, look at it a little bit closer my normal range is more narrow than the normal, normal range. So a lot of labs will say normal TSH is between 0.5 to like 5 or something. I really think looking at the literature, I talk about this in the lecture act, you know, 0.5 to 2.5, 0.5 to 2 probably is really normal. So if you're up in the threes, if you're up in the fours and you have symptoms consistent with hypothyroidism, or if you're low, if you're in the 0 0.1, 0.2 arena and you have symptoms of hyperthyroidism, pursue that. Ask for a full thyroid panel. A full thyroid panel would include something like a TSH, a free T4. Free T4 is 80% of what your thyroid produces. It's inactive thyroid hormone, but it's super important for the cells of your body to take and convert to active thyroid hormone. Ask for a free T3. I think that's super important as well, especially if you're on a lot of prescription medicines. There are things like beta blockers and steroids and antidepressants that can really lower and affect your free T3. And that's really important because you're gonna get symptoms of hypothyroidism and you can get that even if your TSH and free T4 look okay. And then for kids, especially in families with a lot of thyroid autoimmunity, I always recommend to check their antibodies because you don't want to wait till the antibodies have destroyed thyroid tissue enough where they become hypothyroid. You don't want to wait five years. You want to know, is that going on in the background? And if it is, then you can do things. You can make lifestyle changes. You can put them on some vitamins. You can really try to calm the immune system down so that they can go into remission. And the antibodies are things like TPO, 
antibody or thyroglobulin, TG antibody. Maybe we could put those in the show notes. TSI, that's a stimulating antibody that we see in Graves' disease, but we can see it in Hashimoto's disease too. And if you can't get that from one of your physicians, they refuse to order it because sometimes at least here, a lot of physicians will refuse to order things that are asked. There are companies online where you can actually go and get a kit yourself and mail it to yourself and check it by finger prick. I mean, there are ways to do that. But if you have the symptoms and you have a strong family history, there's every reason in the world to think about checking yourself, especially for females of childbearing age and especially for females who are having fertility issues. You really want to get that checked out because fertility is so closely linked to your thyroid function. If your thyroid's not working properly, you are at a much higher risk for miscarriage and fertility issues too. Okay, very good. Great summary. So if I was just to sort of recap that, let's see if I pick that up. T3 and T4, and you mentioned the free levels of both of those. Also total levels of those, are we measuring both or is it more just the free T3 and and free T4 that matters most? So in most people, free levels are more important. We measure total levels in pregnancy, but unless you're pregnant, it's not as important. Okay, cool. And then TSH levels, antibody levels, and that seems to be fairly comprehensive. Yes, I like a reverse T3 as well when I'm titrating medicines, but if you're just looking for a diagnosis, you don't necessarily need that. Cool. And what are the advantages of picking up thyroid issues early? Let's say, for example, you do detect, say, subclinical hypothyroidism. How is that of benefit? Is this auto, if it was Hashimoto's, is this autoimmune condition just going to run its course anyway? Or what are the advantages of intervening early? Oh my gosh, there's so many. So a lot of people are told, you know, if they have Hashimoto's, there's nothing that you can do about it. There's nothing to be done, you know, just let it burn itself out and you're going to become hypothyroid. That is not true. So if you find it early and the gland hasn't been destroyed to the point where you need thyroid medicine. So for example, say you have Hashimoto's disease and your gland is working right now at 85%. That's good. You know, we want to keep it at 85%. We don't want it to drop to the point where you need medicine. So getting on a correct diet, figuring out, do you need to avoid certain foods? Do you have food intolerances that are activating your immune system? Is there something wrong with your gut microbiome, which is super important? You know, 70% of your immune cells line the GI tract. If there's something going on with your GI system and you don't address that and fix it, then you can't usually get into remission. Are you exposed to environmental chemicals like your parents might have been? Get out of that situation. You know, if you're exposed to mold, for example, that's a huge one. Anything that activates your immune system to respond, whether it is an infection or something that causes inflammation, can keep you going with this Hashimoto's thing. And if you can get rid of those triggers, then you can achieve remission. That 85% thyroid can work at 100%. And you can avoid lifelong medicine. So super important to find it early. It's funny you mentioned mold. I was having a conversation not too long ago. And in Sydney, where I live, it's not uncommon, actually, particularly in ground floor apartments that are on sort of a rock surface near the ocean to get a rising kind of damp, a rising mold can begin to infiltrate apartments if you're not looking after the hygiene of the apartment. 
we have the same issue here in South Carolina, a lot of people with mold issues. And we also spray insecticides for mosquitoes everywhere, which can't be good. And, you know, those infiltrate your water supply, not just the air. So it's so important. It's hard to protect yourself even without the artificial man-made chemicals. There are things like molds that cause immune issues as well. And your immune system, I'm convinced the immune system is the craziest system that you have in your body. It, it You don't want to mess with it. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. What do you think about plastic water bottles and leaching of, of chemicals from plastic water bottles? I've heard a few people, uh, even some endocrinologists, sort of talk about the effect that that may or may not have on hormones. Is that something that you've thought about? Yeah, we do, and probably not the best thing. I think that the plastics probably affect the estrogen and the female cycle more than they do the thyroid. They do, I mean, the thyroid and the female cycle, like I said, multiple times has been very closely connected. So in essence, they are affecting that too. But yeah, any chemical that you're exposed to can potentially disrupt an endocrine organ or an endocrine function. And thyroid, because it's so ubiquitous, it's in every organ, really is affected by multiple different types of environmental triggers. Okay, you mentioned diet before and the importance of diet. I'm interested in digging into that a little bit, both from what's been published and what's out there and then also what you see clinically and what you recommend and the changes that you've seen people make that have led to improvement. And perhaps we look at both foods and nutrients, particular nutrients that are really important. At a top level in the sort of published literature, is there any particular dietary pattern or way of eating that has been shown consistently to lead to good thyroid health? So number one, you need enough iodine. So if you're not getting enough iodine, we know with 100% certainty that that can lead to hypothyroidism. But, you know, like I said, most people are getting enough iodine nowadays. And I said vegetarians and vegans may be at a higher risk for iodine deficiency, but it's in our salt products. You know, we get it in seaweed, we get it in other sources. So that would be first and foremost because iodine is the most important nutrient that the thyroid uses to build T4 and T3 thyroid hormone. And then secondly, it is a very personal, individualized kind of thing, in, in my opinion. There's not a lot of literature about diet and thyroid. There are some small studies that look at things like gluten-free. So gluten or gliadin can have an immune system triggering kind of potential, especially in the GI system. So celiac disease is another type of autoimmune disease where the immune system reacts against gluten and can actually destroy the villa in the small intestine. Not good because the small intestine is where you absorb all of your nutrients, your B12, your D, your, you know, all of your nutrients that you need to actually work properly. 
And so there is some literature about going gluten-free with Hashimoto's disease, small studies, but in some patients that is very effective. And so when I'm seeing a patient for the first time and they're asking about diet and nutrition, you know, I will say you could trial gluten and dairy-free. Dairy is very inflammatory to a lot of people. Dairy and gluten are probably two of the most common food triggers for the immune system. What I mean by that is a food or an antigen that triggers inflammation or triggers an autoimmune disease in a person. But when you're doing that, it is a guess. You know, it can work in some people or it can do absolutely nothing. So it is a guess. So is autoimmune paleo or, you know, AIP diet. So a lot of my patients will try that. And it's really, really hard because you're basically getting rid of the most common food triggers that cause an immune system reaction, gluten, dairy, legumes, nuts, soy, all of these things. So hard to keep that going. And most likely you will guess right, at least on one thing in that whole hodgepodge of things that you're avoiding. So you may feel better and that's good, but it's hard to keep that up long-term. You ha- I always tell my patients, you have to have joy. If you're too restrictive, it's not fun anymore, you know? So I really believe in individualizing the diet for the immune system. I'm surprised, and this may be where you're going, but I'm surprised that something hasn't been created and published on like, you know, the low FODMAP diet, something similar to that, where you were just talking there, essentially describing a bit of an elimination diet, but then some sort of program where you're getting reintroduction and working out, well, what foods can you bring back in to have greater diversity and and still remove or reduce your symptoms? Yeah. And I think the reason is because it is not a one size fits all approach. Like I said, the immune system is the craziest system in your whole body. And depending on what your immune system has been triggered by, say it was this viral infection or this chemical, or, you know, it caused thyroid cells to die. And when those thyroid cells die, they break apart into multiple little tiny proteins. Those proteins can look like corn or they can look like apples or they can look like anything to your immune system. That's something called molecular mimicry. So everybody is different and everybody has a different pattern of immune stimulation. I've had people when we actually check their food intolerances, that's important. That's what I do in my practice. I check to see what is triggering their immune system and I individualize their diet for them. But I've had people who have reactions to lettuce or to the aluminum in their deodorants or to something in their toothpaste, to whatever. I mean, anything can trigger an immune response. And that's what you're trying to decrease when you change your diet so that your antibodies go into remission and you can achieve remission and you can stay off thyroid medicine. Okay, so there seems to be quite a personalized approach needed here in terms of the nutrition piece. And you mentioned iodine before, and you spoke to a few sources of that being seafood or different types of seaweeds. And it was a good point that you said there about vegetarians and vegans, because there are studies showing that they can have a lower intake. So it's super important to be on top of that. Are there any foods or other nutrients that you like to go through with your patients to ensure that they're ticking off more than just iodine and getting other essential nutrients that are important for good thyroid health? Absolutely, yeah. So I would say anybody listening that can't do, you know, this personalized approach to their diet, my best advice with them is to eat 
a healthy diet that doesn't include sugar and a bunch of processed foods. Really go for clean, you know, organic when you can. Really try to eat a diversity of plants. Try to optimize your gut microbiome. Like I said, 70% of your immune system cells sit behind that gut wall. So GI health, super important. And if you can focus on low sugar and low artificial nutrients, that is what you should do. You can try gluten dairy free. That's not you know wrong. You're not going to hurt yourself. And I would do that maybe for a couple months and see if there's any improvement in your antibodies or symptoms. And if there's not, then maybe that's not a trigger for your immune system. And then consider individualizing that approach with your provider if they can, you know, check you for, for different food intolerances. And then with regard to, you know, other nutrients and supplements that I recommend, I talk about that a little more in the book that I wrote, but one of the most important is selenium. Selenium is a nutrient that's found in Brazil nuts. It's because the Brazil nuts grow in the soil and the soil is more selenium rich two to three Brazil nuts a day or selenium as a vitamin. Usually I start people with a 200 micrograms daily. I don't like going over, you know, 400. You can get toxic with selenium, so you really don't want to overdo it. But there is data to show that that as an antioxidant can help reduce antibodies and help put you in remission. There are other antioxidants like glutathione and NAC, super important antioxidant nutraceuticals that help to promote this antioxidative state. And anytime that you do that, you're going to quiet down the inflammatory cascade. That is the goal. That is the goal. So again, any anti-inflammatory nutrient will be helpful, like vitamin D3. Awesome. Love it. Vitamin D3 is not only an anti-inflammatory, but it actually works in the nucleus of the cell and it helps modulate the immune system. Macrophages, which is part of your immune system, super important. They need D3 to work properly. Also things like fish oils or there's something called black human seed oil, which is derived from nigella, which is a plant. And that actually has been shown to reduce antibodies by 50% at two grams daily. There's a study about that. And curcumin, turmeric, so important as well. Love that one. It's a great anti-inflammatory. There's anti-thyroid cancer properties too, you know, for people who have thyroid cancer. So that one I really like as well. Okay, so quite a few things there for people to think about. Uh, Omega-3s, so you mentioned their fish oil. Am I right? It's DHA and EPA that is important for people to consider and getting that through, whether it's a few pieces of fatty fish a week or fish oil or algae oil and making sure they're ticking that off. Yes, love it. And I usually tell people like about two grams. You don't want to underdo it. You don't want to overdo it. You do want to look for a product that is purified so that you're not being exposed to chemicals like mercury or other things that you can get from seafood. So you want a good company when you're looking at fish oil products. And you mentioned selenium toxicity and just being careful not to to take too much or, or to really kind of look at Brazil nuts as a supplement rather than a, a food that you're eating a whole packet of. The same goes for iodine, right? What are the potential complications of consuming too much iodine? This is such a good question. So yes, and a lot of people are advised by their practitioners to go on these high iodine supplements. That is not 
a good idea um, for a lot of people. And the reason is, is because iodine can be really good in the correct amounts. But if you take too much and you have an underlying autoimmune disease, there's something called the Wolf-Chikoff effect, which basically means that when that diseased or inflamed thyroid sees too much iodine all at once, It'll put the brakes on thyroid hormone production and actually make the hypothyroidism worse. It'll cause a goiter. It'll, it'll stop production completely. There's also something called the Jade-Bezadao effect, which is the opposite problem. Some people who have this hyper kind of state in the background can take that extra iodine and start making way more thyroid hormone to the point where they become floridly hyperthyroid. So iodine is one of those nutrients that you really, really want to be careful about. The recommended daily allowance is about 150 micrograms daily for adults. You can go up to the 300s, that's fine. But you know the 12,000 micrograms daily, which some people are taking, it's just a lot of iodine. You don't need that much. It's a sensitive uh, little organ, isn't it? Oh, it's very, very, very precise. It needs exactly the right amount of this and exactly the right amount of this. When you're dosing thyroid medicine for people, same thing. It has a very, what we call a narrow therapeutic index. It has to be perfect. I'm interested, you mentioned before, trying to minimize, avoid, steer clear of ultra-processed foods that are loaded with sugars and lots of sodium and, and various oils, et cetera, and are crowding out all of these good foods. I'm interested in talking to a few other foods that come up that I see people asking questions about whether they're okay for thyroid health or okay to consume whilst they're having thyroid medications. And the ones that really come to mind for me are cruciferous vegetables and also soy. Can you speak to both of these and are they okay to consume? Is there a certain amount that we shouldn't be consuming more of if we're taking thyroid medications or what do we need to be aware of? Yeah, that's a great question as well. So soy, I will say there are studies that show that it can affect the absorption of thyroid hormone and it can raise TSH. Now, does it raise it clinically to the point where you would need thyroid medicine? Probably not. If you needed thyroid medicine, you probably, you know, if you ate soy products are still going to need thyroid medicine. So in a normal person who has normal thyroid function, your thyroid can account for that. And you would have to eat so much soy that it would be ridiculous for that to be clinically applicable. But if you're on thyroid medicine, soy products do affect the absorption of the thyroid medicine from your GI tract, from your small intestine. So I do tell people when you're eating those products, make sure that they are spaced at least two hours from the thyroid medication. Same thing with dairy, though. I mean, that really affects it as well. Anything that is calcium product, but soy definitely. But don't avoid it. I mean, it's not a food that um, is going to doom your thyroid into oblivion. You know, you can eat it in moderation. And then as far as the cruciferous vegetables go, so the reason that that's out there is because certain cruciferous vegetables are goitrogens, meaning that they can cause an enlargement of the thyroid gland or can cause hypothyroidism. And it's because of the way that they're metabolized in the body down to something called thiocyanate, which can interfere with the production of thyroid hormone. 
But there have been studies that show that you need so much, you need to reach this threshold where they actually do that in real life. The threshold in one of the studies was like 190 something micromoles or something. And you needed to hit that before you developed a goiter. A goiter means an enlargement of the thyroid gland. And eating things like broccoli or broccoli rab or kale, you're going to get about 10 micromoles. So you need to hit 190 and you're going to get about 10 from eating raw cruciferous vegetables there. There are some cruciferous vegetables that maybe you should limit or cook. And those would be things like collards, Brussels sprouts, or Russian kale, not regular kale, because they can decrease iodine uptake into the thyroid. And there's enough of that goitrin product that maybe there could be a little effect. But usually I always tell my patients everything in moderation. So, you know, you're not going to sit down and eat like five pounds of kale. You'll eat a little bit of raw kale and that should be okay. And like I said, you have to eat a lot of it. You have to get these goitrins up high enough in your bloodstream that they actually do something. And in real life, you're really not going to get that threshold. So those ones there that you sort of reeled off, the Brussels sprouts and collards, are they for people with thyroid issues or just anyone in general to be conscious of overconsuming? Anyone in general, but again, if you have a healthy normal thyroid, your thyroid axis will compensate for that. The thyroid is an amazing organ if it's being inhibited by the chemicals in your environment or too much Brussels sprouts one night, it's going to compensate for that and actually produce more hormone. If your thyroid's struggling, on the other hand, you might not be able to, and that's where it comes into play as far as clinical application. Okay, that's very good information to know. What about calories and how important is consuming adequate calories? For example, if you are under consuming calories and in a huge calorie deficit, does that affect thyroid and thyroid health? So if you're in a huge calorie deficit, the way that your body basically protects against that because your body doesn't like to lose weight. It doesn't like to be in a calorie deficit. It's in survival mode in that respect. It will, on purpose, stop T4 to T3 production. So T4, again, is your inactive thyroid hormone. And you take T4 in your body, and your body and your muscles and liver and other places takes that and converts it to T3, active thyroid hormone. When you are in a calorie deficit, your body, on purpose, will stop doing that because it wants to conserve energy. So you're, in essence, making yourself hypothyroid. You know, we call that sick thyroid syndrome, where the thyroid axis just stops while you try to kind of regain calories. And as far as weight goes, thyroid is very specific to weight. If you have a thyroid gland that's been attacked by antibodies and you're working at 85%, for example, and then you gain 20 pounds, that 85% can struggle to keep up and you can develop more hypothyroidism. Whereas if you stay at a healthy weight or if you lose weight and you're optimal, that 85% is good enough and it can keep up with the flow and you can stay off medication. So weight's super important, but you know, calorie deficit's not so good for the thyroid access. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. 
You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. Okay, now we're getting towards the end of this one and you are an absolute wealth of knowledge. Are there any really important things that we've missed when it comes to thinking about nutrition and thyroid health or perhaps any nutrition myths or things that you see floating around on social media that bug you that you think would be interesting to sort of clear up here? Yeah. I mean, I just think that there's not a one size fits all approach. I think that's the the biggest misconception that I see that it's okay. Everybody who has Hashimoto's has to be gluten and dairy free because that's the diet for you. That's not true. I mean, that's a common food intolerance, but not everybody has the same immune system. Not everybody has the same immune response to a food. And so it is individualized and it's really sometimes hard to figure it out. But I'll tell you, I've had patients who've had 20 years of inflammation in the body and that can manifest as joint pain or swelling or whatever. I've had people who've had 20 years of joint pain. We figured out what food intolerance they had. They avoided it, gone, completely cured. So food is a huge trigger for the immune system. I mean, the reason 70% of your immune cells line your intestinal tract is because that's where you're exposed to things every single day of your life in the form of food. And that's where you're absorbing things. So you have to have a strong immune system response there. And so that is a big part of what we talk about when we talk to people about trying to get their immune system optimized and into remission. And overall, if you're looking at complementary treatments to pharmaceutical medicines, we've spoken about food, you've spoken about the importance of of a healthy body weight, so I'm assuming overall lifestyle becomes very important. Are there any other aspects that you like to speak to your patients about, be it sleep or exercise or anything else in their lifestyle that you encourage people to look at? Yeah. So exercise is really important. That's a big topic of discussion in Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism because it can be inflammatory. So it can actually worsen antibodies if you're overdoing it. Also, you have to have really, really optimized thyroid hormones. And by that, I mean your TSH has to look good. Your T4 has to look good. Your T3 has all of it in order for your muscle tissue to actually function properly. So a lot of people will have this recovery issue after they work out in thyroid and they can't, they're like hit by a train after working out of the gym. And that is because thyroid medicine, again, is not the same as your endocrine organ. If you have a functioning thyroid and you work out, it's going to spit out extra thyroid hormone for your workout and for your recovery because you need that thyroid hormone for muscle recovery and for muscle function. If you're on a daily medication, you're not increasing your medicine the day that you're working out. So a lot of these patients do struggle with that. And, you know, that is an important consideration. I think that's an important part of what we should be looking at in future research, like how to handle that for people. Same thing in diabetes. You know, when people are on insulin, when they work out, they actually become more sensitive to insulin. So they have to lower the insulin that they give themselves. Well, thyroid is the opposite. You have to increase the amount of thyroid you give yourself when you work out. But there's not a lot of data about that. There's not a lot of research on that. And then sleep, like I mentioned earlier, really important. It's in the circadian rhythm of the thyroid. If you are not sleeping well or if you lose that circadian rhythm with your sleep cycle, 
it affects your thyroid function and affects your, your hypothalamic pituitary thyroid access. And a lot of those patients will develop a high TSH, especially people who are shift workers or they don't sleep well, they have a completely messed up um, rhythm. Super important. Any hormone affects any other hormone. That is like the takeaway here. So sleep, love it. Tell people to really work on that as well. We, we talk about that a lot, actually, because the way that your thyroid medicine is dosed can affect your sleep cycle too. There you go, guys. Dim those lights at nighttime. The other thing that I think we could clarify here is if you're making these changes, and you mentioned before, you can measure your changes in symptoms to see if perhaps the changes in food or, or exercise are clearly a benefit, but you can also look at antibody levels and look at your lab results. And that brings me to wondering what the sort of frequency of doing lab work looks like for someone who does have a thyroid condition. So when I'm actively titrating medicine, like when we have people on a medication or we're going to be looking at it every six or eight weeks until we get you right. That's the typical frequency. It takes about four weeks to six weeks for the thyroid access to kind of adjust to medication changes. But if you're looking at it and you're not on thyroid medicine and you find that you have antibodies, then I would make those interventions and then look again in about three months or so. Give yourself time, give your immune system time to kind of settle down and get the antibodies to fall. But the antibody, if you were to put yourself on a 24-hour monitor for the antibody, you would see that it goes up and down every single day. You're looking at trends. You know, I have people who put so much into that antibody number. They've done all this stuff. They've been on the correct nutrients. They've been on the correct diet. They're really, really trying hard. And then their antibody goes up a little bit. There are other reasons for that. Anything, again, that triggers the immune system. You could have been exposed to a chemical driving down the road the other day, and that could have elevated it. So you are looking at the overall trend. It's a journey here. It's not like you're going to be like, okay, fixed it in three months. We're talking about like months to years until a lot of people get into remission and fix the immune system. Yeah, and I guess that's where it, it really pays to be working closely with an endocrinologist who knows your overall history and understands that journey so they can help you interpret those results. Absolutely, yeah. And a knowledgeable endocrinologist or a knowledgeable provider in thyroid is really important. There's a distinction there, I think. And finally, if someone, let's say like myself, I don't have a diagnosed thyroid condition, but it is in my family, how frequently would you recommend someone in my position is doing laboratory work to keep an eye on those various sort of markers of thyroid health? I would say once every one to two years is fine. And then just knowing what the symptoms are to actually follow because you would probably develop symptoms if it's that, you know, penetrant in your family. So knowing what to look for is important. Okay, great. And now I'm sure every single person listening that either has Hashimoto's or has someone in their family who does is going to rush and order your book. And we haven't really spoken too much about it. To wind this up, give me a little synopsis of the book. I know you brought it out a few years ago. And just based on this conversation here, I can tell it will be jam-packed with information. So what could someone expect if they grabbed a copy? As a clinician, I only have about 20 minutes with a return patient, 40 minutes with a new patient. I don't have time to go over all of what we just talked about and all the questions. So I wanted to write a book, and I actually wrote, I co-wrote it with a patient of mine, an actual patient of mine. 
from her perspective as a patient and then from my perspective as her physician. And we went over everything, you know, from the basic stuff, like what is the thyroid and what is T4 and how do I even interpret my labs when I get them and what does this mean to, you know, what are the genetics behind this? If I have a gene that increases my risk for Hashimoto's, you know, what should I be asking my family members about as far as other autoimmune diseases, type 1 diabetes or celiac disease or pernicious anemia? There's lots of different ones so that I can maybe kind of screen for the other things that I might see down the road, not just in yourself, but in other family members. And then we go through different types of thyroid medicine. So I talk about all of the different options that are out there that a lot of people don't even know or don't even talk to their patients about and talk about which ones are gluten-free, talk about which ones are dairy-free. I have a whole table in there kind of outlining all of that. And then we get into diet and we talk about what to avoid. We talk about some of the myths that are out there and what you should be looking at with that. We talk about different nutrients, some of the things that I mentioned, as well as others. And I dive deeper into the environmental toxin part of that. So I will kind of outline for patients, what should you be looking for in your household? What kind of things do you really want to avoid? Like halogens, for example, fluorides and chlorides and bromides. They're all listed under iodide in the periodic table and they can disrupt thyroid function too. So there are, like I said, so many different triggers. I have a whole table about the different triggers. And then I have an entire chapter at the end of different resources for patients. Where do they go for more information? What are some reputable sources? How do they find a provider? They can kind of look up where they're located and you know maybe find a provider, but there has to be more discussion around this. And I wanted something put together in one place for people to use as an initial resource if they're just starting with this disease. I'm glad that you've done that. I can see that being incredibly helpful for people. So thank you for putting that together. And we haven't mentioned the title, but it, it is what you must know about Hashimoto's disease. And if you Google that and Brittany Henderson, I'm sure you'll find it on Amazon and all the places where books are. Now, I would love to have you back on. I, I think we've covered some interesting territory. We could probably continue talking about things like thyroid cancer, but perhaps we pencil that in for a follow-up episode. And I might even take some questions from the community that they have from from this episode. But as I said, you're a wealth of knowledge. I've learned a lot, including the, the Wolf-Chaikoff effect, <laughs> which is something I hadn't heard of. So a good reason not to ingest too much iodine, guys. Thank you so much, Brittany. Let's do this again. Sounds good. Thank you. There we go, my friends. I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, I'm sure Brittany would love to connect with you. You can find her on Instagram at Dr. Henderson MD. That's at Dr. Henderson MD. And of course, if you have Hashimoto's or want to learn more about this autoimmune condition, I definitely recommend checking out Brittany's book titled What You Must Know About Hashimoto's Disease. A few final notes. Firstly, if you listen today and perhaps have a few further questions, feel free to shoot me a message on Instagram at plant underscore proof. That's at plant underscore proof. And I can add to my notes to explore in a further episode. This show is about science and constantly fine tuning what we know together. I certainly don't know everything and really 
am just committed to constantly learning and asking better and better questions as we go. That's my goal anyway. Secondly, I am continually asked about recipes. Pretty much any time I put something up on my story, folks want the recipes. And I get that. The thing is, most of the time, they are just experiments with nothing written down. But I do have a meal plan, and it's completely complimentary. It's got about 20-odd recipes. You can grab it at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. And based on the feedback people have sent me so far, I've actually decided to release a second plan in the coming months, this time with a bit of a twist. So stay tuned for those. I'm hoping it's ready by October. Third note here, in this episode, Brittany rightly mentioned that vegetarians and vegans are at higher risk of iodine deficiency. That's true. There was a paper out as recently as last year out of Norway that I actually included in my book and have shared on social media before that speaks to this. This study looked at around 200 subjects across three groups, pescatarians, vegetarians, and vegans, again, from Norway. And what they found was that in all three groups, there was a high incidence of iodine deficiency as measured by urine iodine. Deficiency was mild in pescatarians and vegetarians and moderate in vegans. This makes complete sense because seafood and dairy does provide some iodine. So what's the practical take-home message here for those who are plant-based? Well, what it means is if you are adopting a plant-based diet, be it predominant or exclusive, you are going to want to make sure you have a regular source of iodine in your regime. Here's the deal. There are really three ways you can go about doing this. The first is dulse or wakame flakes, about half a teaspoon of either every day. The second is half a teaspoon of iodized salt a day. Or the third option, an iodine supplement offering 150 micrograms a day or 220 micrograms if you're pregnant or 270 micrograms a day if breastfeeding. As you know, I take the NutriKind Essential 8, a daily multi-nutrient that contains 150 micrograms of iodine. You can learn more about that at NutriKind.com. That's N-U-T-R-I-K-Y-N-D.com. Regardless of the route you take, the take-home message is to plan your iodine intake. I want you to have a healthy thyroid, and I'm sure you do too. Of course, like all things, it's wise to also test your iodine levels intermittently, which can be done via a urine test. Just speak to your physician about this. And as Brittany stated, not a bad idea to do a full thyroid panel, particularly if you have a family history of thyroid disorders. I'm pleased to report my personal TSH, T3, T4, and antibody levels are perfectly healthy. I test them yearly and ran another test after this episode. Given my family history with thyroid issues, that's something I'll continue to do yearly. At the same time, I of course measure my cholesterol, iron, B12, etc., which thankfully are all in good order. The other really important nutrient for thyroid health that we spoke about in this episode was selenium. 
You can cover your selenium basis with a couple of Brazil nuts a day. You want to really consider them as a supplement, not a snack. A handful of Brazil nuts can quite quickly take your selenium intake to toxic levels. Powerful little nut they are. From a plant-based point of view, it's also good to know you'll get selenium contributions from plenty of other plant foods you eat over the day. For example, one cup of firm tofu contains about 44 micrograms of selenium and one cup of mushrooms contains about 10 micrograms of selenium. Whole wheat pasta is another good one too. You can read more about this on pages 343 to 346 in my book. I also cover iodine, B12, zinc, omega-3s, etc. in the same part of the book. Finally, remember, if you are based in the UK or Ireland, my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is on shelf from September 1st. And if you are in the USA or Canada, it's on shelf in your bookstores locally from November 1st. I'm looking forward to seeing it in your hands. For everyone who already has a copy, thank you so much for all your messages and wonderful reviews. I read the reviews on the Goodreads website all the time. Really pleased the information seems to be landing nicely and is considered somewhat helpful. Cool, we did it. Another episode done and dusted in the bank. Closing in on episode 150 in a few days' time where we hear again from Susie Cameron. I look forward to meeting you back here for that. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.